Hello, I'm Banning Air, and you're listening to Season 6 of the Afropop Close-Up Podcast, where we go beyond the music into politics, religion, history, and culture. In this episode, a conversation with DJ Lene Denise and Professor Xavier Liverman as they share and reflect upon their personal experiences and research of the popular dance music Kwaito. Now, neither of these scholars set out in their career to study this music of South Africa, but when their early work took them to the country and they heard beats similar to the house music they grew up with, they were hooked. Their scholarship not only explores the music, but takes a deep look into the larger political and economic conditions that helped contribute to Kwaito's success. Producer Brandy Howell brings you the Kwaito Generation, the rise of electronic dance music in post-apartheid South Africa. In 2001, I was living in San Francisco, and I came across a CD by a South African artist by the name of Busi Slango. She is from Durban, and she's Zulu. I took it home that night, and I believe that I listened to it over a hundred times. And I was listening before I even knew that I'd be traveling to South Africa. There was just something about this music that moved me. It was not quite till music. It was not house music. It was just this amazing, compelling, contemporary and current sound. And I say that because oftentimes we think about African music. We don't do it the justice it deserves by understanding it as a constantly evolving style of music. In the tradition of ethnomusicology, we sort of think about African music as being rooted in traditional and indigenous ancient cultures versus this new fresh sound. I was so inspired by her work and by her sound. And then I discovered that I'd be going to South Africa. I was there for the World Conference Against Racism and had no intention of being there to study music. It turns out that she was gonna be in a concert in Durban that night. And so I went to that concert and I wanna say it changed my life. Come on, no. My name is DJ Lene Denise. I am producer of the Afro Digital Migration Series, House Music and Post Apartheid South Africa. Okay, come on. My name is Xavier Liverman, Associate Professor at the University of California in Santa Cruz in the Critical Race and Ethnic Studies Department. The title of my book is Kwaito Bodies, Remastering Space and Subjectivity in Post-Apartheid South Africa. My introduction to Kwaito was on a plane. Right after college, I had decided to join Peace Corps and I ended up being assigned to Lesotho. We were on our plane from New York to Johannesburg and they played just kind of like, you know, that kind of touristy selection of music that you get as the plane is getting ready to land. And then all of a sudden, Boom Shaka's It's About Time video came on. Uh, 
I just was blown away. There was something that reminded me of house and R&B and hip hop, and it just felt youthful and vibrant. And I was just, I want to know more about this. As soon as I got off the plane, actually, I remember asking some of the airport workers, like, what's the name of this song and who sings it? And I bought the tape. It was certainly within 24 or 48 hours of uh, arriving. And that was where the love affair, if we want to call it, with Kwaito began. My research is under the umbrella of a term that I call the Afro-digital migration. It's about how electronic music was able to migrate from place to place with the sort of growing use of technology to create music, but also the situation created an opportunity for people to digitally record tapes and to travel with these local-based sounds. I visited South Africa for the first time in 2001. I kept hearing what I would describe as like a slowed down version of Chicago house. It was like, why am I hearing this house music? Of course, speaking to some of the local artists and DJs in South Africa, they schooled me on the fact that this music was called Kwaito music. Kwaito music was an interesting combination of house music but also rooted in South African regions within the country. Born out of a 1980s culture, Kwaito music began to emerge in the 90s following the so-called democracy and the dismantling of apartheid. It was preceded by a form of music called bubblegum. And bubblegum was being developed at the same time that house music and techno music was being developed in the 80s. One of the most famous bubblegum artists being Brenda Fossey. Kwaito is an iteration of a sort of diasporic sound, yes, electronic music, but also a local sound in terms of bubblegum music, which was also in conversation with Black American music. It was an iteration. It was an interpretation. It was a translation based on local politics and their own social context. And it has this distinct sound, right? Um, it's about South African creativity. I heard Kwaito music coming out of the vans, right? The local sort of taxi vans. And these taxi vans were characters in themselves, right? They were almost this interesting kind of competitive way of capturing the attention of audience slash patrons. 
Johannesburg and a lot of the major urban areas in South Africa are as much about the sense of sound as they are the sense of sight. This taxi industry, of course, had started basically because the apartheid government didn't really invest in public transportation. And it then became this industry that in many ways the state still struggles to kind of regulate. It was kind of left alone in the late apartheid era where it really began to spring up. But it's one of the spaces where you see a lot of Black people who were able to kind of significantly shift their class positionalities as a result of owning these fleets of taxis and becoming quote-unquote taxi bosses. This was a pretty much Black-run and controlled industry, even during apartheid. These were young men, generally, that were driving, and they would listen to their music while they were driving. These forms of public transportation, they were nothing like a public bus that you would ride in the U.S. They were more like the most cacophonous representation of the New York subway. So you'd see airbrushed paintings of Nelson Mandela. I even saw airbrushed paintings of Tupac and different American artists. But what was striking to me was the full-on sound systems in the back of these taxi vans. I was excited just to get in a taxi van. I didn't have anywhere to go, right? But I wanted to hear and see how people responded to this mobile venue, to this mobile dance floor. They were very sonically rich spaces. And a lot of these young men would play the kind of music that they were listening to that they thought was hot and popular. And so they became really important taste arbitrators because you kind of knew what was in. There's a lot of competition and people know that like if you have a choice of which taxi to get into, you're gonna jump in the taxi that's playing the beats and seems vibey. South African women who have groceries in their hands, who were going home, nodding their head to the Kwaito grooves. Children, you know, whoever is a part of the community who was relying on public transportation became part of the cultural identity of Kwaito music. This was one way that the songs were spread, particularly early on before there was a lot of radio airplay, before there was actually a lot of selling of this music in mainstream record stores. You know, before you got that, it was a very DIY bootstrap type of operation where people were selling things out of the trunks of their cars. And so... Taxi drivers were really important mobile DJs and taste arbitrators. That was the first place of engagement. And then from there, I began to notice that, you know, I heard Kwaito in the grocery stores. I heard Kwaito religious music, gangster Kwaito music. So it was political, it was social, it was cultural, and it was localized, and it was brilliant. So I was just listening and, and just falling in love, and then... I was presented with the opportunity to apply for a research travel grant, which would have been the first for me. And I thought it was pretty bold to write a proposal asking to go to South Africa to study house music as a DJ. Right. I was like, I'm not sure that this foundation, this organization would respect the cultural work that a DJ does. And so that forced me to develop the kind of language that I needed to create a situation where a foundation would understand the social value of my work, you know? So I had to think through language and also maintain the integrity of the practice. I wasn't trying to shift the language so that it was removed from the art form, 
but rather using a framework that could be understood both on the dance floor and on a grant application, right? Talking about the scholarship involved with DJ culture, the research involved with DJ culture, the interviewing skills that I would be able to develop, the sort of ethnographic approach that I'd be using to create an audio product that would communicate my research findings. And for me as a DJ, that turned out to be the mixtape. That is where the Afro Digital Migration Project was born. I received a grant from the Jerome Foundation. I went to South Africa. I interviewed folks. I was in community with DJs. I spent time in the townships, dancing, talking, learning, laughing, hurting, crying because of the legacies of apartheid. And just trying to make sure that I, really one of my biggest missions was just to not rely on my Black American lens and to lead with curiosity. I returned to the States and completed that first mix. And one of the things that I did was I wrote liner notes. I think that was the game changer for me. I think that's when DJing as an art form, sort of almost investigative journalism came together and became the theoretical framework that I would use to introduce the culture. I traveled with the USB and I traveled with CDs and I would exchange tons of music with different South African DJs. So I always had the latest tracks that weren't released yet or weren't on the radio. And so I returned to South Africa in 2016. I returned in 2018. I collected music and then I did a total of three Afro-Digital Migration, House Music, and Post-Apartheid South Africa mixes. One of those mixes I dedicated to Abertina Sisulu, to Winnie Mandela, to Busi Flango, to Miriam Akeba, just thinking about the South African women who often get erased when it comes to thinking about South Africa as this sort of holistic anti-apartheid struggle that tends to center Nelson Mandela. That was a mix. And then my most recent mix centers Amapiano, which is a new form of house music. And it was interesting because I created it in the midst of the pandemic. One thing about Kwaito music and then eventually house music in South Africa is that it also, in a post-apartheid context, is part of a new industry that's created, a new way to generate resources for folks who were making the music in the township. So studios, promoters, venues, DJs were able to make money from these sounds. There was an industry created around South African Kwaito and house music. These multi-billion dollar industries develop around the cultural production of poor people, of marginalized people. And oftentimes we know that what that means when we think about apartheid in particular, that there are going to be white folks who benefit, who are still sort of controlling the kind of money that can be made or owning the corporations that have the power to distribute the music. So I think that alone represents some of the economic legacies of apartheid. Kwaito had to enter into a music industry in South Africa that's quite exploitative. But yet at the same time, right, it represented this space for particularly younger Black people to be involved in the music industry in ways that they just couldn't before, right? And I would argue that was the music industry. I would argue that that ended up 
moving into spaces like advertisement, right? Because you needed to then hire Black people who understood this music and culture. And so I think that it was a double-edged sword economically because ultimately a lot of the exploitative practices of the South African music industry were and are still continuing to be replicated in Kwaito, right? And that includes, you know, the lack of acknowledgement for women artists, the lack of pay and performance opportunities for women artists, so forth. On the other hand, though, you had young Black South African musicians within Kwaito getting certain kinds of economic deals from record companies that were somewhat unprecedented. And then once again, you know, music companies had to start kind of looking for talent that understood this music. You started to see more Black people on the business side of the industry. By the time you got to 97, you were then finally at least hearing it on the radio. And in the case of a station like YFM, almost exclusively, Kwaito was what was being played. You had YFM begin in 97. And I think Metro started in 93 or 94, although initially Metro didn't play a lot of Kwaito. Metro FM was state and still is, actually. And it's sort of run as one of the state-oriented stations. But I think by creating it, there was a belated recognition that there was an urban Black population listening to music and that that needed to be catered to. YFM was really critically important because it was a majority Black-owned station, first and foremost. And secondly, it hired, you know, majority Black talent, young Black talent. You know, in some ways it was even more radical than Metro experiences because they played almost exclusively this new music. They were playing hip-hop when a lot of stations weren't playing local hip-hop. Basically, if it was being done by young Black people, they were playing it. And that was just very revolutionary because you just hadn't had an attempt to address young Black people's cultural taste in that way before. And it spawned an industry. There were magazines and then television shows. There even became literature, right? Like all of these sort of blossoming of cultural practices that were reaching out to a community of Black youth culture and valuing Black youth as a voice that needed to be catered to as an important population for the future of the country. And then we might also just say, perhaps slightly cynically as a market, you know, to be, to harness and, and engage. Kwaito was also, whether the truth was a little more complicated than that, but it was considered to be sort of Black township music. And so therefore, it was representing a certain kind of understanding of class. It was representing a certain kind of understanding of educational status and respectability politics and things such as that. And so... In that instance, it also was then something that oftentimes was used politically to either think about, well, how successful has this shift from apartheid to post-apartheid been in providing opportunities to Black township residents and the Black poor? And if you look at the economic data, it, it doesn't look great. So I think there were times when certain kinds of individual success stories of Kwaito artists were used to stand in and paper over, you know, some of the economic failures of the post-apartheid regime. 
It becomes an interesting thing to think about South African Kwaito and house music as a part of the post-apartheid or the democracy, the sort of personality of a nation that is still recovering and healing from, I mean, if that's even possible, from the violence and from the trauma. It's interesting that electronic music is holding that space as a part of the recovery, not to be confused with the reconciliation, right? That's not, we're not talking about reconciliation because there are still major questions around ownership, around resources, around freedom, around economic justice, around equality in South Africa. But when I visited in 2013, I was intrigued by the fact that house music was so prominent and is so prominent in South Africa that Winnie Mandela, you know, has heard <laughs> house music and has probably moved to house music. It just became a major part of the national personality. When I think about the ways in which we learn about Africa and technology and how sort of these racist understandings of Africa as being behind, being victims of this sort of digital divide and then thinking about what South Africans were doing with electronic music and technology, it totally debunks the myth that African folks are not, not just, you know, using technology, but advancing it. And so I think this post-apartheid environment created that kind of freedom, even though the limitations of the legacies of apartheid still exist, even though the music has become a new sort of global interest. What I witnessed were living ghosts of apartheid. So I'm not sure that I can say post and post-apartheid in a way that honors the number of Black South Africans who are still struggling. The kinds of alternative imaginations that people are creating in the world of music are ones that I think should be maybe the template for more discussions of how we reform our societies, the political economy, etc. In an ideal world, we all should feel free to move with abandon in our bodies. We should all feel free to celebrate our pleasures. But in order to do that, a certain kind of society has to be created. And I think that means the dismantling of much of what's in place now. Pleasure and joy are intricate parts of dance and music globally. But I think that I am just always aware of pushing for that as a dominant way to understand the music. Because yes, these are human beings that are experiencing joy and dance. But then we have to look at the role of South African music in terms of resistance against apartheid and the way that music was regulated, the way that music was censored. But also I'm thinking about cultural practices like the toy toy, right? Which is a South African dance that was a part of massive demonstrations against the apartheid regime. So yes, that pleasure and that joy, but also music is a weapon and music is a tool of resistance. And then yes, Privately, music as a form of joy and dance when one feels safe enough, when one feels like they have shelter, when one feels like they have access to food and resources, that one can understand the role that pleasure and joy plays in the creation of the music. But one is always aware of what they're up against 
And that is, you know, sometimes inseparable from the music. I'm not rooting South African music or global black music in trauma, but I'm talking about the daily experiences with trauma that then seeps into our forms of pleasure. I do believe in what I call misery resistance, which is different from just blanket joy and pleasure, but misery resistance really understands how you can, regardless of material circumstances, create a sort of shield, a force field of rhythms, if you will, to protect you from white supremacy. I'm excited about the fact that when I travel to South Africa again, I will be introduced to another hundred songs that can't be found on YouTube or Spotify. And that's because of my close relationship with those DJs there, some of whom are the producers who simply spin the music for the people who come to the club. Like some of it is private. I don't even necessarily, you know, <laughs> have access to it. I like that there's just a certain kind of community exclusive listening practice. And I think that that's radical actually. I'm a DJ and therefore an archivist by default. For me, I'm trying to articulate what it means to be a Black American witness of the kind of political and cultural development of South Africa. I really hope that my listeners become curious about South Africa and not start and end at the music and at Kwaito and at Amapiano, but ask larger questions about how the music evolved and in what social context, ask questions about who Miriam McCabe was, ask questions about why we know so much about Nelson Mandela and why Winnie Mandela has been so demonized, ask questions about Pansulu and Soweto and the Soweto uprisings, you know, in 1976, because those are all of the things that went into my love for these mixes, right? Like I was thinking about South African people as a whole and not just what they created. I was thinking about South African music beyond its entertainment value. I just want them to use the music as a soundtrack for their curiosity about the social and political history of South Africa. And also, yes, the joy, the pleasure, the genius, the brilliance in the music that is being created in that context. This Afropop close-up was made possible by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. But to keep this series going, we need your support. Visit afropop.org and make a donation today. Every dollar counts. For Afropop Worldwide, I'm Brandi Howell. <laughs>